Now, let me begin the sermon by stating the obvious. This is Super Bowl Sunday. As if you didn't know. For a lot of people, Super Bowl Sunday is a big deal. It's a time that's become really effectively a secular holiday for people in the Northeast, especially New York and Boston. It is a really big deal. Even for people in St. Louis, it's a big deal because people have Super Bowl parties. People get together with friends and celebrate and have fun, whether they like football or not. That is not true in the Holly household whatsoever. Super Bowl Sunday is not a big deal in our household. I like football. I look forward to the Super Bowl. I will watch the Super Bowl. My wife could not care less about the Super Bowl. As a matter of fact, what she gets excited about on Super Bowl Sunday is that she knows there will be no line at the car wash at Waterway on Manchester Road. So, so if you're looking for my wife today at 5.30, she will be at Waterway Car Wash right down here. And you, if, you, if you don't like the Super Bowl, you can kind of make it a, another Green Tree event. Go bowling, go to the whole car wash. I mean, maybe that will be our next thing. That's where my wife will be. Knowing how little she likes sports, I asked her last week, do you remember the year the Rams won the Super Bowl? She said, yeah. And she should because she watched the game. And I said, do you remember how the game ended? She said, no, I have no idea. Now, in case you don't know, it ended in one of the most memorable plays in Super Bowl history. But my wife had no memory of it. Now, I remember it really well. We had a house full of people. Our basement was filled with kids. My, my sons were in high school, and they had a bunch of their friends over. And they were downstairs yelling and screaming throughout the entire game, and we had the Warners over. Tom and Susan Warner and Joan and I were watching the game. And if you remember how it unfolded, the Rams took a lead early on. The Tennessee Titans tied the score late in the game, just before the two-minute warning. The Rams then scored on a long touchdown pass to Isaac Bruce and then kicked off to the Titans, and the Titans began this what seemed to be an inexorable march toward the end zone, racing against the clock to get there. And so... With six seconds to go in the game, they had the ball on the Rams' 10-yard line. Tom and I were frantic with worry. We were pacing around, yelling and screaming. The kids in the basement were screaming. Even Susan, who's not a sports fan, was sitting there on the chair like this, panic-stricken. Are the Rams going to blow the Super Bowl? And I looked over at my wife, and there sits Joan working on her Bible study. She's got her notes out. She's going through it. She's writing things down. And godly man that I am, I turned to her and said, Joan, you've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. You're reading the Bible? Put the Bible down and watch the football game. (laughs) Now, clearly, she should be up here giving the sermon, not me. You got the wrong person in front of you. I have my priorities screwed up. She's got them straight. I was shocked last night, shocked. I was down in the basement watching the Mizzou KU game. Congratulations, Doug. And... And whoever it is back there waving at me, congratulations. And I came, up, came upstairs, and my wife was watching the game. I couldn't believe it. She doesn't watch sports. For the sake of my wife, for the sake of the Brehob kids, who, believe it or not, the Rams once were good, for the sake of everybody else who remembers the Rams winning the Super Bowl, we want to look at that last play. I want, I want you to see and remember and relive a day when the Rams were relevant, and we're actually good. So this is the last play of Super Bowl 34. If he has to. They look a little confused right here. Not a good thing. After the timeout. From the 10. Probably the final play of the game. In regulation. It is caught by Dyson. Can he get in? No, he cannot. 
Mike Jones made the tackle. And the Rams have won the Super Bowl. No line. The game is over. The Rams have won the Super Bowl. We never thought we'd hear those words, did we? But we did. It happened. It wasn't fiction. Now, I promise that that is relevant to today's scripture, (laughs) which is Romans 11, verses 11 to 16. Last week, Tom got us up to, through Romans 10, we want to pick it up right in the wake of what Tom talked about last week. So what I'd like to do is read the scripture. We're going to open in prayer after that, and then we're going to jump in and see what we can learn from Romans 11, verses 11 and 16. So the words will be on the, are, are on the screen. They're in the, in the uh, bulletin as well. If you have your Bibles, please read along. This is God's holy and perfect word, Romans 11, 11 to 16. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might, they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you, Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. This is a reading of God's holy and perfect word. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for the fact that you speak to us through your word, that you reach across the centuries and give us your truth. And we pray that in the next few minutes that we will better understand what you're trying to say to us, what we can learn from this, how it connects to our lives, and how it will help us to better connect with you. Thank you for your mercy in giving us your word. And we ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now the truth is, when we read those words, I think they're pretty cryptic. I mean, what the heck is Paul writing about here? And frankly, once we begin to cut through what he's saying and begin to understand it, I think the next question is, what does it have to do with us? Because what he's talking about is the role of the Jews and the role of the Gentiles in God's salvation history. And frankly, that's not something I've given a lot of thought to, and I bet most of you don't either. I mean, this is a big cosmic question, and it's not the kind of thing I really worry about much in my day-to-day life. So I'm worried about the price of gasoline or how much bread costs. This is not something I think a lot about. We can understand why it would matter to Paul. I mean, after all, he was a Jew... He was a well-educated Jew, a very religious Jew, a convert to Christianity. And he knew well the history of his people. He knew well God's promises to his people. And as, in a sense, the balance begins to shift in the first century, where the Jews had long been the keepers of God's flame, now it was passing to the Gentiles. Paul was concerned, what does this mean? How do we interpret this? What is God up to? What is he doing in salvation history? What difference does this make? We want to look, he he will later on look at what will happen in God's salvation plan for the Jews in the future. That's not going to be our concern this morning because that will occur later on in chapter 11. What we're going to look at instead is this interplay between Jew and Gentile. What is God doing and why? And what can we learn from that? So before we do that, we need to establish a few fundamental questions. The first thing is in the very first sentence that Paul writes in Romans 11 is, 
So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Now, I assume you know this, but just in case, the they is the Jewish nation. Corporately, all of the Jews. Now, clearly, when he says that they stumbled in order they might fall, he's, he's basically saying, has God turned his back on the Jews? Is their sin in rejecting Jesus as the Messiah? Is that, is that going to lead to the Jewish nation? Corporately, all of the Jews. Now, clearly, when he says that they stumbled in order they might fall, he's, he's basically saying, has God turned his back on the Jews? Is their sin in rejecting Jesus as the Messiah? Is that, is that going to lead to their ruin? Now, clearly, he says, the answer is no, by no means. That is not what's going on. It is not that God has turned his back on the Jews. It's not that he's written them off and said, okay, I had plan A. I'm done with you. I'm going on to plan B. I'm going to put, make the Gentiles my people now. That's not what's going on at all. If we think that, we're missing the point. Clearly, it's not true. Tom said this last week. Let, remind, let me remind you. Many of, the, many of the leaders of the first century church were Jewish. Of course, of course God was not turning his back on them. Peter, Paul, the disciples, many others were Jewish. There's no way he's turning his back on his people after making all kinds of promises to them. God's promises are faithful and true. He doesn't change his mind. Rather, this is a part of something that's been going on since the beginning of time. What we need to, be, what we need to grasp is that God has had a salvation purpose from literally the beginning of time. As a matter of fact, if we look at what happens in the wake of Adam and Eve's rebellion in the Garden of Eden, if you look at what God says immediately to them once they've deliberately and willfully sinned against them, directly disobeyed a command he gave them, we can see that's true. I mean, let's look at Genesis 3.15. Now, God is a, this is in the, in the context of God issuing a judgment against Adam and Eve. He's expelling them from the Garden of Eden. But in the midst of this, he turns to Satan and says to him, I will put enmity between you and the woman, you is Satan, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall crush your head and you shall strike his heel. Now, that's kind of mysterious too, but what he's saying is this. Satan, you're done. You're a goner. You think you've won. You think of destroying the beauty of the garden. That You've triumphed over me. That is not the case at all. One day, a man born of a woman will crush your head, will destroy you. You'll, bruise, you'll strike his heel, you will hurt him, but he will destroy you. What God is effectively saying in the immediate aftermath of man's disobedience to his direct commands, God is saying, I've got a plan. I've got a plan. This plan is in place. This is going to happen. And this is a plan that does not change. This is a prophecy of the coming of Jesus and of the work of Jesus on the cross on our behalf. Even even in the very first pages of human history, we see this is true. We see it even more clearly in Genesis 12, too. This is when God makes a covenant with Abraham. This is when he puts a stamp on the Jewish nation and says, you will be the conduit of blessing to the world. This is what he says to Abraham. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now those are fantastic promises. You'll be a great nation, I'll bless you. Your name will be great, I'll bless those who bless you, and so on. That's a fantastic series of promises. And Abraham must have been sitting there just in awe of what he was hearing. But this begs a question for us, I think. And that is, why Abraham? I mean, why did God say, of all the people on the earth, this is my guy? 
And the answer is, there's no answer. There's no good answer. Was Abraham a decent human being? Absolutely he was. And we, we will see him do many, many noble, heroic, faithful things in the rest of his story that's told in Genesis. But we'll also see him do some really despicable things, some shameful, embarrassing things that make us go, oh, Abraham, please, not that. Abraham was just a guy. He was just a guy, a guy that God chose. He said, you're my man. And we see that pattern repeated again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. Why did God choose Jacob? Why did he choose Moses? Why did he choose David? Why did he choose Saul? Why did he choose Ruth? Why did he choose Esther? Why did he choose Jonah, Samson? There's no rhyme or reason from from any human perspective. All we know is that God is at work in ways that we don't understand. And he's been doing it from the beginning of time. He has a plan in place. And we sit here and scratch our head and say, what are you up to? Why are you doing what you're doing? We get frustrated with God. We pray to him, and we don't understand why he does what he does. Because we don't really see the span of what God is up to. We have such a limited limited perspective. Max Lucado wrote a parable, which I'd like to read, which I think explains this very well. It doesn't really have a name. I'll, I'll call it the old man and the horse, which, for, as I read it, the reasons will be obvious. But I think it captures the confusion with which we live and the reality of God's perspective versus ours. This is the parable. Once there was an old man who lived in a tiny village. Although poor, he was envied by all, for he owned a beautiful white horse. Even the king coveted his treasure. A horse like this had never been seen before. Such was its splendor, its majesty. It's strength. People offered fabulous prices for the steed, but the old man always refused. This horse is not a horse to me, he would tell them. He's a friend, not a possession. How could you sell a friend? The man was poor and the temptation was great, but he never sold the horse. One morning he found the horse was not in the stable. All the village came to see him. You old fool, they scoffed. We told you that someone would steal your horse. You're so poor, how could you ever hope to protect such a valuable animal? It would have been better to have sold him. Now the horse is gone, and you are cursed with misfortune. The old man responded, Don't speak too quickly. Say only that the horse is not in the stable. That's all we know. The rest is judgment. If I've been cursed or not, how can you know? The people answered, Don't make us out to be fools. The simple fact that your horse is gone is a curse. The old man spoke again. All I know is the stable is empty, and the horse is gone. Whether it's a curse or blessing, I don't know. All we see is a fragment. Who can say what will come next? The people of the village laughed. They thought he was crazy. If he wasn't, he would have sold the horse and lived off the money. But instead, he lived hand to mouth in the misery of poverty. Now he had proven that he was indeed a fool. After 15 days, the horse returned. He hadn't been stolen. He had run away. Not only had he returned, he brought a dozen wild horses with him. Once again, the village people gathered around the woodcutter. Old man, you were right and we were wrong. What we thought was a curse was a blessing. The man responded, once again, you go too far. Say only that the horse is back. State only that a dozen horses return with him. How do you know if this is a blessing or not? You see only a fragment. You read only one page of a book. Can you judge the whole book? Life is so vast, yet you judge all of life with one page or one word. All you have is a fragment. Don't say this is a blessing. No one knows. I'm content with what I know. Maybe the old man's right, they said, but deep down they knew he was wrong. They knew it was a blessing. Twelve wild horses returned with one horse. A little bit of work, the animals could be sold for much money. The old man had a son, an only son. The young man began to break the wild horses. After a few days, he fell and broke both legs. 
Once again, the villagers gathered around the old man. You were right. The dozen horses were not a blessing. They were a curse. Your only son has broken his legs, and now in your old age, you have no one to help you. Now you're poorer than ever. The old man spoke again. Don't go so far. Say only that my son broke his legs. Who knows if it's a blessing or a curse? We have only a fragment. Life comes in fragments. It so happened that a few weeks later, the country went to war against a neighboring country. All the young men in the village were required to join the army. Only the son of the old man was excluded because he was injured. Once again, the, the people gathered around the old man crying because their sons had been taken. There was little chance they would return. The enemy was strong. The war would be a losing struggle. They would never see their sons again. You were right, old man. Your son's accident was a blessing. His legs may be broken, but at least he's with you. Our sons are gone forever. The old man spoke one last time. It's impossible to talk with you. You always draw conclusions. No one knows. Say only this. Your sons had to go to war, and mine did not. No one knows if it's a blessing or a curse. No one is wise enough to know. Only God knows. Only God knows. No one knows if it's a blessing or a curse. This. Your sons had to go to war, and mine did not. No one knows if it's a blessing or a curse. No one is wise enough to know. Only God knows. Only God knows. We see life in fragments. We don't know what God's plan is. We don't know what he's up to. The central question is this. Do we trust him? Do we trust him? Do we trust that God's mercy, that his love, that his generosity, that his courage, that his care for us will last for eternity? In the day-to-day moments of our life when we shake our head at God and say, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this to happen? Why don't you answer my prayers? What's your plan? What are you up to? Can we trust him? It's hard. It's really hard. Circumstances are difficult, but that's the challenge. So, as we read Romans 11, in the discussion of God's plan for the Jews, we need to see it in the context of thousands and thousands of years of God at work in the, in the lives of his people, and God being faithful to his people. Look at what Paul writes to return to verse 11 to explain the Jews' hard hearts in rejecting the Messiah. This is what he says. So I ask, did they stumble in order they might fall? By no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. He's saying, all right, Jews, you think that you have been the conduit of my blessings, and you have been, but now I'm going to include the Gentiles as well in a way that you've never seen before. We can see that in, in God's first words to Abraham. Let's, we've already read them, but just to remind you, he said in his final phrase, and you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. So from the very beginning of time, God's plan was to include Jew and Gentile alike. It was never about one, the exclusion of the other. It was always about both. And we can see plenty of evidence of that in the Old Testament. The Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar was blessed by God. The Syrian general Naaman was blessed by God. The Canaanite prostitute Rahab was blessed by God. The Moabite woman Ruth was blessed by God. God sent Jonah to Nineveh to preach repentance to the Gentiles, to the Assyrians. All of these are examples in the Old Testament of God's plan at work. The Jews saw themselves as the exclusive recipients of God's blessings, but their view was too narrow. It was much too narrow. It's one of the reasons that the religious leaders of Jesus' day didn't understand him, didn't trust him, didn't know what he was up to. When he cast out demons from the child of a Canaanite woman, when he counseled a, when he counseled a Samaritan woman, when he healed the child of a Roman centurion, the Jewish elders looked at that and said, what is he up to? 
this man is not doing what a man of God would do. That's one of the reasons Jesus told the parable of the tenants in Matthew 21. The landlord owns a field. He rents out the field to workers. He sends his servants to collect rent from the workers, and they beat the servants. They refuse to pay the rent. They don't listen to the master's plea. They even go so far as to kill some of the servants. So he says, I'll send my son. Surely they'll listen to my son. They have to pay attention to him, but they ignore him too, and then they beat him too, and then they kill him. And Jesus pronounces judgment in Matthew 21, 43, saying as a warning to the Jews, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and will be given to a people producing its fruits. Listen. Who is the Messiah? Do you listen to him? Now, why does this matter to any of us? This is all a discussion that's rather obscure. This is thousands of years ago. We, again, we don't worry much about what God's plan is in the cosmic sense for Jew and Gentiles. But I think there's some conclusions we can draw, and I think we can bring it down to a much more personal level at the same time. Here's some conclusions, I think, we, that come out of what we've said to this point. God has been working out his divine plan since the beginning of time. We've seen that in Adam and Eve, in the promises given to Adam and Eve. That's certainly true. Second, God has been the initiator of that plan from the very beginning. It was God who went to Adam and Eve. It was God who extended the olive, olive branch to them. It was God who went to Abraham. It wasn't Abraham saying, okay, God, here I am. God found him. Third, God has been gracious to undeserving people since the time of the fall. Adam and Eve didn't deserve his mercy. Abraham didn't deserve his mercy. I don't deserve his mercy. Next, God's plan included a place for the nation of Israel and for the Gentiles from the very beginning. We've made that point. But it's important to see that God didn't change his mind halfway through saying, uh, you know, this didn't work. I've got to go over here now. This is always part of the plan. Next, God's people have failed to understand what God is up to and have second-guessed his plan throughout human history. The Jews didn't get it, and we don't get it today. I mean, you think about the Jews. They saw Gentiles as second-class citizens. They treated them as such. We've spent the last 2,000 years doing the same thing to the Jews. The anti-Semitism of the era of Christianity is shameful. It's a blot on the history of the church. Jew and Gentile alike from the beginning of time. And finally, God's salvation plan unfolds according to his timetable, not ours. Now, we would all like God to do our bidding. We'd all like him to do what we want when we want him to. But that's not the way it works. God has a plan for individuals and for nations, for people, for the world. There are many, many people in this room who I'm sure have prayed for a friend, prayed for a family member to, to give his or her life to Christ. We've all done it. And in some cases, nothing happens. We may pray for years. A child, a brother, parents. We may, we, we've, many of us have done that. And nothing seems to happen. We pray for somebody in 1988. We say, God, please save my friend. Please let him understand who you are. Please let her see your love for her. And nothing happens. What we fail to see is that God's timing is not our timing. That God, who stands outside human history, looks at the world and says in 1988, I hear your prayer. That woman, that man is a child of mine. I will call that person to me in 2026. So we spend the intervening years shaking our, shaking our fist at God, saying, why aren't you doing anything? Failing to understand that he has done something from the beginning of time in that person's behalf, he loves them far more than we do. Do we trust God? Do we trust God?
or do we say he doesn't care? It's easy to second-guess God. We all do it. We all do it because the circumstances of life can be extraordinarily difficult. But let's turn the page a little bit. Paul says something in verses 11 and then 13 and 14, which I think are really interesting. He says this. We've read this verse already, obviously. So I asked, did they stumble in order they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And then he says in 13 and 14, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Twice Paul uses the word jealous. He says, I want you Gentiles to make the Jews jealous. We think of jealousy as a bad thing, and obviously it usually is. But he's commanding us to make people jealous. He's telling us to do that. Now, we need to be clear what he is and what he's not saying. He's not saying make them jealous, make other people, non-Christians, Jew or whoever they may be, jealous by being rich or powerful or influential. That's not it at all. If we think that, we've missed the boat, although many Christians argue that that's the case. It's much, much easier to find verses in the Bible that command us to be humble, to be gracious, to be kind, to live lives of service and humility and even poverty than it is to find verses telling Christians to be wealthy and to pursue wealth as an end. That's not it at all. We see these words in 2 Corinthians 3.3 that I think shed light on this very well. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible because I think it stands for me at least as instructions for how I ought to live my life. I do it very imperfectly. But this is what it says. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Look at what that says. We are a walking, talking, living, breathing letter about Jesus Christ. People ought to look at us and see in us a clear communication of God's love and God's mercy and God's compassion and God's grace. And we're not very good at that, are we? We're not very good at it. But it happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. I've heard many people say, and I bet you have too, they will say something like this. You know what? Before I was a Christian, I looked at this person, and I saw in her, I saw in him, a quality of life, a compassion, a mercy, a wisdom, a sense of peace that I envied, that I wanted. And I was drawn to that person, and through that person, came to know Jesus Christ. That's holy jealousy. That's the kind of jealousy that Paul's writing about. The walking, talking, living, breathing letter that points people directly to Christ is what we're after. And what Paul is saying is that the ordinary church-going Christian, the ordinary man and woman in the pew, is to be that walking, talking letter. One of my favorite parts of the Bible is in the last chapter of many of Paul's letters, in Romans, in Corinthians, and other places too, where he will put aside theology and it'll get very personal. And he'll talk to, the, to individuals in the church. He'll thank them for the work they've done. He'll extend greetings to them as a recognition of his friendship to them. And the people he names are invariably people who are not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. These are obscure, ordinary, everyday people. In Romans 16, he mentions some two dozen people. And I want to read some of the names of these people. These are the pillars of the church in Rome in the first century. Asyncritus, Apelles, Julia, Tryphena, Nereus, Ampliatus, Olympus, Eponidas, Junius, Mary. 
We don't know anything about these people. They were the ordinary, pew-sitting church members. We think the church is built through people like Peter and Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Mary, and it was. And we're grateful to them. But we ought to be equally grateful to Asyncritus and Apelles and Julia and the rest, because these are the people who on a day-to-day basis walked the streets of Rome, ministering to their neighbors, their friends, the people they worked with, the people they went to school with. That's what we as Christians are called to do. It's not just Peter and Paul and Mary and Barnabas. It's everybody else. The, or, the ordinary moments of our life are to be an expression of God's love to the world, which is very, very, very difficult for us to do. To go on the streets of Kirkwood, into Missouri, St. Louis, throughout this country, wherever God sends us, to be living letters. Yeah, that means we go to Joplin, we go to Tijuana, we go to the work at the Lydia House, we volunteer at the church in some way, and that's all important, but it's going out, again, into the neighbor, our neighborhoods, into our places of work, into our families, and being the living letter. Now, today, as we, we began by talking about the Super Bowl, let's come back to that. Mike Jones' tackle of Kevin Dyson is one of the most memorable plays in Super Bowl history. I read this week in USA Today, they're listening to great moments in the Super Bowl, and that was one of the top five moments. It's arguably the only great moment in the history of the St. Louis Rams. <laughs> but it was a great moment. I would say the more important play, the more significant play, occurred the week before. If we're going to remember one play in the history of the Rams, it shouldn't be Mike Jones, although, okay, that's great. But it ought to be what happened the week before in the NFC Championship game. Let me set it up a little bit. The Rams were playing the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The Rams have trailed in the fourth quarter until Kurt Warner throws a touchdown pass to Ricky Prohl, puts him up with about four minutes to go. They kick off to the Buccaneers, and just like what happened in the Super Bowl, the Buccaneers begin a march down the field. They don't get as far as the Titans. So there's 34 seconds left in the game. They have the ball in about the Rams, 35. It's fourth down. There's time for one play. Now, there's another play after this, but this is the last significant play in the Super Bowl. If the Rams can stop them, or not the Super Bowl, the NFC Championship game. If the Rams can stop them here, they'll win the game. Let's see what happens. Down to this. Sean King firing deep for the end zone. And the ball is batted out of the end zone by the Rams. And incomplete. And the Rams have escaped, it would appear. 11-6, to six, they lead as they take over with 34 seconds. And Tampa Bay out of timeouts. There's a fight over there in the Tampa yep. Bay sideline. I see a yellow helmet. The problem is you only see one. Yeah. A little frustration when you come this far, play this hard, do as well as Tampa Bay did, you get that close to the Super Bowl, and it's not to be. And for the Rams, it is to be. They better get Billy Jenkins out of yeah. there. There's no place for that. I mean, win the game and, and play it like you expect to win it and play it like you're a champion. I don't, I, don't, I don't think you need that stuff. Handle it like a champion. Here comes Trent Dilfer. Uh, 
I mean, Dilfer doesn't belong in there either. I mean, well, know. look, he's waving, taunting. Yeah, I mean, none of that. I mean, neither side on that is right. I yeah. mean, Kurt Warner, Kurt Warner is the guy that's right. I mean, he's coming over there and he's getting Jenkins out of there. Let's set the, let's set the context for this. The Rams were terrible the year before. Nobody expected them to be good at all in 1999. But all of a sudden, they became this miracle team. Those of us who lived in St. Louis, and even those who didn't remember that, it was extraordinary. And what made it even better was, of course, the Kurt Warner story. Kurt Warner, second-string quarterback, arena football player, grocery clerk, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, plays only because of an injury to Trent Green in the last exhibition game. It looks like the season's been ruined. And yet Kurt Warner has an extraordinary season, ends up being the, the MVP of the NFL, is a week later the MVP of the Super Bowl. He throws a touchdown pass to Ricky Prohl. And I want you to think about what that stadium was like on that day. Somebody in here was probably there. The place exploded. The place went crazy. People are high-fiving. People are hugging. A lot of us were at the World Series this fall. We know what that's like. You know what? It's, it's crazy. People are going absolutely nuts. The Ram players are going absolutely nuts. They've just, they've just achieved the dream, which, which they hadn't even entered their mind was possible. They were going to the Super Bowl. They were high-fiving. They were hugging. They were rolling around on the turf. They were pouring Gatorade on, Gatorade on Dick Vermeil. I mean, the whole thing. They're celebrating. This is about them. This is the pinnacle of success in the NFL. But Kurt Warner, the guy who had more reason to celebrate than anybody, looks across the field and sees Billy Jenkins, one of his teammates, taunting the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So what does he do? He walks across the field, he grabs Billy Jenkins, and he walks him back to the Rams' sideline. He doesn't know the camera's on him. He doesn't know that John Madden and Pat Summerall are talking about him. He doesn't know any of that. He just sees the situation that he wants to step in and intervene in. Now, I knew Kurt Warner was a Christian. I mean, that was a very famous part of his story. But I remember watching that game, I remember watching that play, and I, th- and I thought this, that guy's a real deal. This guy's incredible. Who thinks of the other team at a time like this? Who puts aside his own joy, his own euphoria, his own self-gratification, and walks across the field thinking of the other team? I wouldn't do that. I would have been looking for the Gatorade. I wouldn't have thought about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, but Kurt Warner did. That, to me, is a great example of what Paul is talking about when he says, be a living letter. Quietly, unobtrusively, without any fanfare, doing the right thing. Extending compassion, thinking of the other guy, putting himself in their shoes, walking across the field, walking across the field to do the right thing. We're commanded by Jesus Christ to walk across the field in all kinds of ways. We want to make people jealous. We want to live a life honoring Jesus Christ. We need to walk across the field. We need to be people of mercy and compassion and grace and humility to think as Kurt Warner did on that day of other people more than we do of ourselves. Let's close in prayer.